Is that is, I don't feel like that is should be capitalized. Uh, pretty sure it should be, but good thing you have a website to find out. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. I hate you, John. I was so, I was so happy that you saved my topic that I was so excited to talk about by doing a good summary of it. And I was so proud of you and so, so in love with you in a fraternal way. Save it. It was fine. It didn't need saving. Well, you know what I mean? And, and I was so in love with you in a fraternal way. And now I hate you again, just like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's supposed to be capitalized. Damn it, John. Are you ever wrong? If you'd believe the internet, you are never wrong. It's a burden, I'm sure. Yeah, it must be a hard life. (laughs) (laughs) September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, and our friends at Relay, which is also us, uh, (laughs) we try to raise money as best we can uh, for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Uh, They do incredible work, predominantly in the United States, but their work also has been shared, or the results of their research have been shared the world over, and have done a phenomenal job of decreasing the mortality rate from childhood cancer. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a lot. They've done really, really incredible work. And every September... Relay, even though we, this, this particular show is not officially part of Relay, I think it, we are kind of unofficially part of Relay, especially in September. And so we join Relay, and since we all have Relay shows, we join Relay in, in trying to raise money for uh, childhood cancer awareness, for, for curing childhood cancer, and doing everything we can. So this is the time of year that I will be belligerent and accost you even more than I do for T-shirts, which I know is a lot, and tell you, hey, if you have even a dollar to scrape together that you could send to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital to help cure childhood cancer. What else would you do with that dollar? Well, you know, buy Diet Coke. It's delicious, but it doesn't help cure cancer. And some would argue it probably makes cancer. So I would even argue whether it's delicious. I mean, let's be honest here. (laughs) That alone is also arguable. Well, we'll we'll leave that aside for now. But (laughs) nevertheless, stjude.org slash relay. S-T-J-U-D-E dot org slash relay. Uh, ATP will probably be making some sort of joint donation at some point. We actually haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. That's on the to-do list for after this very show. So uh, if you have even a dollar to your name, please, stjude.org slash relay. Please send a little bit of money. Uh, I've been taught, I don't want to, I don't really want, I don't want to guarantee anything, but I've been talking with Stephen Hackett, who uh, has a child who was a patient at St. Jude and St. Jude, I think by any reasonable measure, literally saved his child's life. Uh, anyway, Stephen and I have been talking and I might be getting involved with a little special treat reward. Maybe, maybe don't want to guarantee anything, but you know, maybe get a little excited if we, if we raise a lot of money. So, Please, if you have anything that you can donate, no amount is too little. I mean that. Now, of course, no amount is too much either. But hey, no amount is too little. stjude.org slash relay, if you please. And I've looked up the stats that you couldn't get before. Treatments invented at St. Jude have helped push the overall childhood cancer survival rate from 20% to more than 80% since opening. And with one in five children not surviving, St. Jude won't stop until no child dies from cancer. There you go. Thank you, John. Although I tried to put the URL in there for you as well. I had, I had to do the same uh, pitch on uh, my show recently, and I was trying to like, what's, what's the URL? It's, I'm like, it's probably stjude.org slash FM. And so I tried it, and it worked. But apparently slash relay also works. So stjude.org slash relay, with or without the FM. It's just a redirect that goes to the place where you can donate. Please donate. Um, 
the more the better. And and I honestly like the, the podcast thon is coming. Uh, you know, they do like what is a twenty four hour thing or whatever where they raise money and it's a big deal. They do all sorts of cool activities which may or may not involve Casey, which may or may not involve me because honestly I wasn't supposed to be involved last year. But I think I somehow I got sucked into it. But I always feel like when we do the pitch on here, like you know they're already raising money, right? So we're we're late to the game here, ATP listeners. We really need to represent for ATP to show we, we want to see the ATP bump you know what I mean last year we did it with making fun of Casey with a little asterisk in the name or whatever <laughs> that was amazing <laughs> and that helped us kind of like in indirectly helped us see how amazing ATP listeners are and how generous they are and I really want to see like the ATP bump right so you know it's not going to be the size of the podcastathon bump although I, I think we could achieve that if everyone gave tons and tons of money but please give as much as you can represent for ATP uh, it's a great cause Yes, please. And right now, as we record, $37,124.33. We can do a lot better than that. It is early in the month. I will concede it's early in the month. But we, all of us, can do a lot better than that. And I agree with John. Let's be jerks about it. Let's just claim as much money as possible for ATP. Let's do it. Oh, yeah. Like, because, you know, as Casey mentioned, like, we we are... Uh, we are near Relay. We are Relay adjacent, but we are not part of Relay. And so I kind of feel like this little wonderful little rivalry that could happen here <laughs> in only this way of like, I don't care about any other kind of rivalry. But like if it's a rivalry where like we're just raising more and more money for a really good cause, like there's kind of no downside to that. Right. <laughs> like There's nothing negative about that. So it would be kind of amazing for us to continue to like, you know, throw a massive amount of ATP inspired fuel on this fire because this is a really good cause and, and we will keep talking about it uh, every week during September as the rest of you know, the Relay uh, world does um, because this is a great time to do this and as Apple releases all of their good stuff probably over the next month and we all dump a massive quantity of money on new you know, little shiny gadgets that we don't probably necessarily need. Uh, maybe, you know, most of it's want and a little bit of need. You know, we can also think about how we can allocate some some of our money in, in better ways. Yep. So you'll hear about it some more. Um, and I will repeat my, um, my offer from last year, which I believe was whoever has the highest donation will get a not-for-sale batch of ATP stickers, which really are not that impressive but i mean oh i mean i mean i mean they're incredibly cool the best stickers i've ever seen what you mean is they're exclusive sold out limited edition not available anywhere except this way exactly so if you want to buy a multi-thousand dollar set of atp stickers i strongly <laughs> encourage it please do uh you will be deeply disappointed and yet also very proud but nevertheless i mean when you compare it to like nfts i mean you talk about you know spending a lot of money for not a Nothing. significant object, right? <laughs> like I feel like we're at least giving you an object. <laughs> like there is at least something. Here. Yeah, and we, and we know the sort of uh, the provenance of it. like this is a legit sticker from actual Casey, not just like oh someone printed something that looks like an ATP sticker and gave it to you. This will be the real thing. So it actually has collector's value, right? Yeah. So yes, please. Stjude.org slash relay if you please. Moving along to follow up. Uh, Philip Spedding has some follow-up also from 2011. Uh, apparently, John, you said, and I am quoting from the show notes, and apparently this is from Hypercritical Episode 31, and this was released on August 24th of 2011. Put it on your calendar from 10 years from now. Is Microsoft making PC hardware or tablets or anything like that? So what, what's your ruling, John? I mean, this. so this episode, I had to go back and listen to it to remind myself what this was about. First of all, this was an episode where Dan couldn't make it, so Ryan Ireland was the guest host, so it was weird for me to hear not Dan's voice in there, and then I remembered that we had a, a guest spot. And we were talking about uh, HP leaving the PC business. Uh, maybe kids don't remember that, but <laughs> Hewlett Packard was a company. Uh, they used to make personal computers that ran Windows, and they were leaving the PC business, 
and uh, the the topic of the show was like, or not of this part of the show anyway, was where does that leave Microsoft? Because if the only PC makers that can survive are the ones that essentially cater to business by selling the cheapest possible PCs, it's going to be really hard for Microsoft to ever compete with Apple uh, in terms of quality or cachet or innovation or anything like that because their entire business would be around, you know, being the lowest bidder to sell millions and millions of PCs to the business world, which is a great business to be in, but you're never going to be Apple, uh, have, have those sort of the shiny things that Apple has in that scenario. So, uh, the, the, you know, the possibility came up, but like, well, what if Microsoft starts making its own personal computers? Because it seems like, like, you know, in the free market of the Windows world, it seemed like no one was willing to make nice computers. I think it was also Lenovo, uh, I don't know if they were leaving or if they'd just been sold or something like that, or the ThinkPads had been sold in Lenovo. Anyway, um, Microsoft can just do it itself. And then at least one company will be ma- making nice PCs. But of course, Microsoft making PCs doesn't make other PC makers feel really good because now Microsoft is competing with the companies that it's supposed to be supporting as the platform vendor. So that was the topic. You can I, I put we'll put a timestamp link in the show notes. It's back a little bit farther so you can hear a little bit more of the conversation or you can just rewind a few minutes and hear it. And yeah, that was the prediction. Let's look at this 10 years from now and to see if Microsoft's making PC, PC hardware. Uh, they absolutely are. They make the Surface line. They make the that weird, uh, what the iMac should be, drafting table, Surface Studio Pro. Uh, they don't make phones anymore. They did for a while. But yeah, Microsoft makes PCs. Uh, and it's kind of exactly like uh, we discussed 10 years ago in that they don't make PCs that compete with the Dells of the world to be the cheapest possible PC you can put on the desk of all your employees or laptop or whatever and give them, they try to make computers that are nice. And I think they actually are pretty nice. A lot of them are like they, they have a, a design aesthetic that yes, looks a lot like Apple, but it's also very elegant and nice. And I'm using one, uh, their mouse right here on my Mac. And I think it, it fits in well. Um, and yeah, it seems to me that the main reason they're doing it is because they want to make really nice PCs and show off what windows can do. And, the rest of the PC world just wasn't doing it, right? It's like you can motivate them. You can say, we really want our PC vendors to make great hardware. But what really happened is they just ate each other and ate each other and ate each other until there was just one or two big companies left that sell to businesses. And no one was really, except for in the gaming world, perhaps, where you have those really ugly gaming PCs. Nobody was making a an Apple-like computer. So now Microsoft does. Yeah, turns out. Yeah, and this email came in on the exact day of the next 10-year anniversary. That's just why I tried to shove it into the show. It doesn't have anything to do with what we're going to discuss, but <laughs> August 24th was yesterday. All right, moving right along. Uh, I owe a formal apology to Colin Donnell. Uh, I had attributed and credited Gruber for the, quote, Mac-assed Mac app, uh, which was how Gruber, I thought, described Mac apps that are really are good platform citizens that really care about being you know, something that feels at home at the, at, on the Mac. And Colin Donnell pointed out to me, oh, no, 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 no. That was me. Yeah, it's it's as though nobody remembered where follow up came from. Like how freaking frustrating would that be if nobody knew the genesis of follow up? That was from Dubai Friday, right? Yeah. I right. think so. I think that's you were right. two you were two people off though, because it was a Brent Simmons blog post. And Brent Simmons says, I stole this phrase from my friend Colin Donnell. <laughs> and then Gruber then took it from seeing in, uh, on Brent's posts and probably talked about it in the various slacks that we're in. Yeah, so we were two degrees off there. Sorry, sorry, Colin. This is your phrase. Duly credited. 
All right, moving right along. Uh, a very funny name on Twitter, King Oleg One, uh, made an actually uh, what appears to me to be a reasonable observation. I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say about this. Uh, King Oleg One says one important thing to add. Oh, I'm sorry. This is with regard to one password and it going to Electron, which again is based on web technology. One important thing to add is the risk of dependency injection via the JavaScript package ecosystem, which is a total mess. I, for one, would never trust an Electron app with sensitive information, no matter the company behind it you know for example crypto wallets that did the same and whose users were hacked this way so uh how can we effectively describe this so a lot of times particularly in javascript and a lot of code but particularly in javascript you will pull in code from other places because it will do things that you don't want to have to write yourself and oftentimes it will do them more efficiently and it will be better tested and battle proven etc 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 so you might pull in you know a, a library that that lets you store data in a certain way just for the sake of discussion well if you're not inspecting that code that you're pulling in, it could do nefarious things. Like you have no way of knowing unless you actually go through the code and look. And so it is certainly possible that if one password is written using Electron and if some of the code that they pull in, which I'm assuming they pull in at least some, uh, if some of that code wants to do a nefarious thing, unless they are extremely diligent about their third-party dependencies, that could happen, right? So that would be very, very bad. And yeah, we've talked about this before, but people who don't know Node and they're just like, oh, you're just saying it uses libraries. Every language uses libraries. What's the big deal with Node? Well, the way the JavaScript slash Node.js ecosystem has evolved, there it's a very uh, widespread use of packages. And the packages are often not trivial, but very small. And there are a lot of them. So whereas you might make, I don't know, a, you know, an iPhone app and you include like one third-party library to do a thing for you. A typical Node app includes literally hundreds or thousands of third-party <laughs> libraries, right? And that's not an exaggeration. That's not like, oh, this is an extreme case. It's very easy. If you just do create React, React app and make a React application in Node and count the dependencies, you're already underwater. There's a huge number of them. And the way it's usually done with sort of continuous integration and cloud deployment for server-side stuff anyway is that they a lot of them are get pulled from the third-party repositories that are on the web. And so you're pulling library A, which uses library B, which uses library C, which uses library D, and so on. It's like all the way down the chain. It's like hundreds or thousands of dependencies. And as if any one of those dependencies gets updated, they often require newer versions of other dependencies. In many ways, it's a, a lively ecosystem, rich with <laughs> new and updated apps and bug fixes. And yes, it's, it's very active, right? But it also means that sort of nailing down your dependencies and saying, look, this is it. We're just going to use these libraries and we're never going to change them again is difficult to do because people find security problems and there are bug fixes and you want those. And so you say, well, I'm not just going to be stay frozen at these thousand versions of my dependencies. Every single day, one of those dependencies gets a bug fix or security fix. And sometimes those are important. You don't want to ship with a security problem. And in fact, the main package manager for Node has built into it an audit feature that lets you know all the security problems that your current dependency stack has and how to fix them and all that other stuff. So the common practice is, if a module is updated, if a library is updated, pull the new version because it probably has important fixes. And that's how the sneaky, you know, security stuff gets in. Someone will use a library uh, that returns a Boolean value indicating whether or not a number is odd. It's a real thing. <laughs> Look it up. Um, and and someone will sneak a, uh, a bit of code into there that likes, you know, does Bitcoin mining in your application or tries to steal keystrokes and send them to a website or something like that. And no one will notice because who, no human is going to manually audit, you know, hundreds or thousands of dependencies every time one changes. It's just human nature. It's too much stuff. Um, so 
that's that explains why it's people aren't as concerned about security flaws of including a library or two in your Mac or iOS app. Although there is concern like those third party, even if you're using one library and it's a third party like analytics tracker, those are kind of creepy too. But anyway, uh, that's why people are concerned about Node specifically. Indeed. And then uh, Rustam Karimov, who is uh, one of the co-founders of 1Password and also developer, had a tweet in which you know he had some commentary on that. He writes, the 1Password code repository has more Swift than TypeScript, TypeScript being, you know, a not a front end, but a different way of writing JavaScript. It is not your off-the-shelf Electron, Node.js, or web app. It is more integration with macOS than any Catalyst app you can show me. And I'm actually curious if that's true. Uh, we should actually talk about that in a second. Uh, launch services, Touch ID, keyboard shortcuts, system, sleep, wake, etc. I think the numbers show how we built 1Password 8. Do as much as possible in the common core, which they're very excited to tell you is built on Rust, and then use Swift for macOS specifics and TypeScript for the front end. Yeah, so I mean, it uh, it does show that like you know if the majority of their code is in JavaScript, it's not as bad as it could be. But of course, the front end is JavaScript, and they didn't didn't really answer the question of how they handle dependencies because it's <laughs> it's a difficult problem. Like, there's no easy solution to like, oh, everyone just knows you should just pin all your dependencies and just never change them. It's like, well, that's not good either because like wait a week and you'll find out one of your dependencies has an incredible security flaw that you need to fix, and now you have to update it. And then it's just so easy to just do what npm tells you to do and update all your things. And then you can do a git diff to see what's changed and just your eyes will glaze over and eventually you'll get sick of looking at it and you won't find the Bitcoin miner. You know, people make fun of me for never wanting to use third-party libraries in my apps. Like, I, I almost never bring in third-party code. Almost never. Like, unless it's something that I really can't do myself and it's very complicated and that I can easily look at and audit. Like, you know, two files. Like, you know, something really simple. And yes, I know it's possible to sneak weird stuff in, but like, you know, nobody's doing that to like my audio buffer <laughs> library or things like that. But, uh, you know, it, for the most part, I do everything myself. And this is a blessing and a curse. You know, the the curse is that I do everything myself, and so I have to do everything myself. And I, I basically reinvent the wheel all the time, and that has pluses and minuses. You know, the pluses are that I know everything about my code. I know everything it's doing and everything it's not doing. I know how it works. If I have to get in there and change or add to it to add functionality or change the way something behaves or figure out why something isn't behaving, I know it all because it's all code I wrote and I have right there. Uh, whereas that's not true when you bring in other people's libraries. That being said, I definitely therefore move more slowly. Like, I think once I get to where I was going, it's a better place to be that it's all my code, but it's a much slower road to get there. And I certainly avoid a whole host of these problems that, that you guys have been talking about. But, you know, obviously I bring on my own problems of things like having to, you know, fix bugs that other people have already fixed, you know, handle edge cases that other people have already handled and stuff like that. So, you know, it's a mixed bag, but I, I still like the way I do it better. I mean, you're you're still, especially on the the Apple platforms, you're building on top of the OS, which is not third party, but it's first party. But that's the the majority of the code in your application is Apple's code, right? That's true of everybody who builds on a platform. That's you know, you're not setting even aside the operating system, just whatever UI framework and everything. That's where all the code is. That's where all the lines of code are in all of our applications. The whole point of Cocoa and all the other things is like, oh, you get to write at this level where we've already written all the libraries for you to do stuff and you just tell us button goes here, window goes there, when they click this happens and then the whole machinery of the UI runs under there and then underneath there is the foundation services and then the core OS services and, and the kernel and all the way down. So we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. It's just that you don't want to be standing on the shoulders of random internet script kitties who wrote the uh, is odd and library, which by the way has a dependency. Of course it does. It, really, <laughs> it, it depends on the is number library. <laughs> but it only has one dependency. It's very slim. Oh my, oh my god. Gosh. 
All right. So very quickly, uh, with regard to Catalyst apps, uh, I had asked or put out a call for for submissions, if you will, of what people thought of and held up as really good Catalyst apps. Most of them I've not heard of, and most of them were not really popular as far as I knew. The one, I should have kept better notes on the things that I was told, but the one that I do remember hearing a lot is Craft, which is, I guess, one of those um, new cool kid note-taking apps, if I'm not mistaken, or like personal knowledge management, whatever things. Uh, This is so not in my wheelhouse, but um, I think it's called Craft. I hope I have that right. But uh, I will find a link and put it in the show notes. But yeah, apparently that's Electron, excuse me, not Electron, is Catalyst and is very, very good from what I've been told. I think I used Craft when they they were first advertising it. Maybe they were advertising that it was under development or whatever. Anyway, and I could swear I thought it was a web app when I first used it, but that was a while ago. Things have probably changed. Moving right along, we have some CSAM uh, news information that we need to talk about. I actually have not been following this very closely, but my very limited understanding, and perhaps, John, you can fill in a little bit here, is that somehow somebody or a team of somebody's have like extracted the neural hash algorithm from a, I guess, a pre-release build of iOS and have been throwing things against it to try to see if they can create a collision that is wrong. So... Just to back up a half step, remember that the way this works is every one of your pictures will be analyzed and and a hash will be generated. And if that hash matches something that is known as child sexual assault material, something like that. Abuse. Abuse. Thank you. Child child sexual abuse material. Um, Anyways, if it matches one of these images or one of these hashes, I should say, then that'll cause problems, right? Well... People have extracted the algorithm, allegedly, and have been looking to see if they could make collisions that are not actually collisions, which is to say, take two unlike pictures and have the algorithm say, oh, these are the same thing. And I guess that's happening, and people are figuring out a way to do it. Uh, And that's lightly alarming, (laughs) to say the least. Well, I I don't think it's as bad as people say, because... The, the idea of, you know, any hash, any hashing algorithm is taking a lot of information and reducing it down to a little bit of information. There's always going to be the possibility of collisions where two different inputs produce the same output. So collisions are inevitable. If you are specifically looking to craft collisions with a certain algorithm, you know, it, it usually can be done, you know, without too much trouble. Um, so, you know, I have no doubt that people will be able to create images that, you know, look kind of like random noise as though so far, I think, I think all the collisions that, that they've you know published so far, I think they all kind of like random noise. So it's not, you know, it's not like it's a picture of a puppy and somebody looks at and, and the algorithm says, oh, you know, we better report this to Apple. Well, that's not entirely true, but you continue. I'll clarify in a bit. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, the idea of being, being able to create or find collisions is, you know, not great. You try to, when you're designing a hash algorithm, you try to minimize the chances of that, but, you know, it's inevitable. So the question is, what happens when a, colli- when a collision is found? Like, what happens to an image that matches the hash? And we know that already. You know, what happens is it gets that, that you know, security voucher thing that's, that's uh, sent to Apple, and if they collect enough security vouchers from the same account, they're able to decrypt the images and look at them. Well, it, that that would instantly then be obvious to the, the human who's reviewing this, you know, deciding whether to forge law enforcement or not. They would see, oh, this is not CSAM. Therefore, we don't need to file this report. So it's an interesting, you know, academic exercise. It's an, it's interesting to prove, you know, the limits of this hashing algorithm. But I don't think this is a big deal that that it's possible to create collisions here. Uh, I, I just don't think it's a big deal. Now there is. 
you know, there is certainly the 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 angle of like, could you somehow like attack someone else by inserting these images into their library and then therefore getting them in trouble or getting them possibly in trouble or getting law enforcement possibly to go, you know, give them a visit. That's certainly, you know, an avenue worth considering, but I, there aren't even a lot of ways to get images into other people's photo libraries without their interaction. Um, so that, and, and again, like if it's actually not CSAM that you're ingesting into their library as well, that's not really going to do anything in the long run. Um, now, it is certainly worth questioning whether there are ways to get CSAM, actual CSAM, into other people's photo libraries and get them in trouble. That's certainly worth you know making sure there's not a good way to do that. Uh, but the existence of hash collisions and the ability to generate them, I don't think does much in this context because there is that level of human review. So to start with, like the reason this, this item has a question mark after it in the little follow-up notes here is... Uh, they extracted an algorithm with, from a function that looked like it was probably the CSAM hashing function from like a released version of iOS. It's not even like a beta one because apparently Apple has been testing this for a while. You just run, presumably running it against people's libraries and, you know, limited fashion or whatever. Who knows? Maybe it just wasn't using it was dead code. We actually don't know why, what it's doing there. But we don't actually know for a fact that this is the exact algorithm, right? So uh, there's that. And so people were using this algorithm. Remember, the, the job of this algorithm is to try to tell if uh, an image matches one of a fixed set of images that's in this database, the, you know, the NCMEC database, right? And instead of, the reason we need an algorithm, why don't we just compare it byte for byte, is because it wants to find the image even if it's been modified in some minor way, like, oh, it's tinted a different color, or there's like some words over it, or, you know, it's been rotated a little bit, or it's black and white instead of color. Like, that's why the algorithm exists, to try to say, you know, here's the fixed set of images we're looking for. We're looking for this exact image. Not an image of a dog, but this exact image of this exact dog, right? That's what they're looking for. But we want to allow for minor variations because we don't want to miss an image just because, you know, someone recompressed it as JPEG again, right? That's why these algorithms exist. And as we said a couple shows ago, the threshold exists because this algorithm is not exact. It uses like whatever, you know, what is it, a neural hash or whatever. It's it's guessing. It's trying to make a best guess because although humans find it easy to say, yeah, these are the same picture, even though that one's been recompressed as a JPEG at lower quality, it's really easy for humans to figure that out, not so easy for computers to do. So it's making a best guess. And that's why the threshold exists because you don't, if the algorithm was 100% accurate, you'd flag on the first one, right? You're not letting people have 28 pictures. You Like it's because it's not exact. So uh, let's say, for example, that this neural hash had a 50% success rate at identifying images matching a database. You give it an image and it's like a coin flip. It's like, well, this image of my dog, 50-50. It could, this algorithm could think it matches an image in the, in the NCMEC CSAM database, or it could not. Uh, if you did that, and you know, remember Apple's, Apple's like a document said, there's a one in a trillion chance of an account being flagged. So they're basically saying there's a one in a trillion chance that you that a, a an account account will be falsely flagged that that you will reach the thirty uh, photo limit and by the way I think since the last show uh, I think Craig Federighi's basically said it was like thirty photos but that's the number everyone is using right so you know it's one in a trillion that you're going to reach the thirty uh, image limit right if the algorithm had a fifty fifty chance is that one in a trillion and I tried I did a little math to figure out like 
let's say you have the worst algorithm in the world and it is a 50-50 chance of, of identifying an image incorrectly, how many, what would the threshold have to be to get one in a trillion? And the answer is 40, right? So if you had, if this algorithm was awful, like 50-50, people would say that's awful. Like, why are you even using this hashing algorithm? Half the time it gets the answer wrong. If you have a threshold of 40, the odds of it getting the answer wrong 40 times in a row, exactly 40 times in a row in sequence, right? Just one after the other is one in a trillion. Now, yeah, obviously Apple algorithm is better than that. And people have more than 40 images in their collections and they're not sequential. So those that probability calculation is not particularly relevant. The only reason I bring it up is to show that no matter how bad the neural hash algorithm is, Apple can adjust the threshold to make sure that even though it might get one or two pictures wrong, the odds of it getting 30 pictures wrong, no, not in a row, but 30 pictures wrong out of an entire collection are what they say it's supposed to be, you know, one in a trillion. And obviously they did that based on like test data or whatever. And they mentioned that they will adjust it as long as the threshold isn't like a thousand or a million pictures. If the th- you know, probabilities go, you know, go up pretty quickly as you start requiring more and more coincidences, right? No matter how bad your algorithm is, right? So that's the first thing to understand about this is that, you know, it, anyone who knows anything about hashing or any of these algorithms should know that this is going to have false positives. That's the reason there's a threshold. And that's also the reason, as Marco mentioned, that there's human review. Second thing to know is in terms of trying to make collisions. People have made collisions uh, with like, Marco said, like noise images. Like, oh, this, you know, this is a picture of a dog and here's just a gray bunch of noise. And then the algorithm thinks they're the same. Ha ha, our computer's dumb. But it's so easy for a human to see the gray field of noise is not the picture of a dog, right? But people have made other collisions where like, here's a picture of a pen and here's a picture of a nail. And it thinks those are the same picture. And you can go, okay, I can kind of see that because they're both kind of long, skinny things, right, on a white background, right? Lots of collisions between similar looking pictures, which is kind of this algorithm's job. It's supposed to find the exact picture, but if you get them close enough, it can be confused. So that makes sense too, you know, collisions happen, right? But to sort of weaponize this, what you need to do is not just get two images that collide, that have have the same neural hash. What you need to do is get a, you know, a harmless image that neural hash thinks matches one of the CSAM pictures in the NCMEC database. And to do that, you have to know all of the hashes of the NCMEC images in that database. And as far as I'm aware, there is no way for you to get those specific hashes. The things that ship on your phone are derived from those hashes, but are not in fact those hashes. And here's what Apple had to say in this article from The Verge where they responded to this whole controversy. Um, This is The Verge writing here. Apple said its CSAM scanning system is built with collisions in mind, given the known limitations of receptacle hashing algorithms. In particular, the company emphasized a secondary server-side hashing algorithm separate from neural hash, the specifics of which are not public. If an image that produces a neural hash collision was flagged by the system, it would be checked against the secondary system and identified as an error before reaching the human moderator. So what I interpret this as to say is that, all right, so neural hash algorithm is going to ship with your phone, and we can run it, and we can do all these experimentations with it. But Apple also has its own different hashing algorithm that they run on the server side. And so not only would you have to get the hash from the NCMEC database, which I don't think you have access to, and find an image that matches it, because if you had the hash, you could find an image that matches it, and then get it on someone's phone. And then that image also needs to fool the other hashing algorithm that they're running, which you don't have access to. So you have no way to sort of reverse engineer that algorithm or figure out how to fool it or whatever. So you need to fool two different hashing algorithms, and then finally go through human review. 
So I think if you wanted to get someone in trouble uh, for having CSAM on their phone, as Marco points out, you could send them CSAM and that would do it, right? <laughs> like there's no trying to trying to fool the system with like a noise image or a picture of a dog or something is way more work than just finding actual CSAM on the internet, which is probably in the NCMEC database, and shoving it on their phone. In all cases, you're performing a criminal activity, essentially trying to frame someone for a crime they didn't commit, you know, or whatever, you're going to try to blackmail them. Or, you know what I mean? Well, I think that in the latter case, it's like you have two felonies instead of one. Right. Or there's, there's all these schemes that come up, like you could have someone in a, in a lawless state uh, find an image on the internet that's probably in the NCMEC database and give you the neural hash of it because you, otherwise you can't get that one. And then now you have the hash to target and all they send to you is the hash. And now you're not in the possession of CSAM so you can find an image that matches that hash and put it on the phone. But then when it gets to Apple system, they're going to run a different algorithm on it that you don't have access to and it's not going to match in that case. So this is a fun and interesting thing and it can freak people out who don't understand, as Marco explained, that the job of a hashing algorithm is to take a large number of inputs and produce a much smaller number of outputs, which necessarily means there have to be collisions. Otherwise, it's not a hashing algorithm. Um, and that's why the threshold exists, because there's going to be false positives. And we, we just have to tune it so that we need when we have enough or preponderance of evidence, the odds of that many false positives happening is very, very low. And then finally, you have human review. So I think this story mostly faded because it's too, again, technical and weird and you know, involves security stuff that most people don't care about. Uh, but it is an opportunity to learn about hashing algorithms, I suppose. And I, I feel like this part where Apple told us about the second server-side hashing algorithm is kind of an example of, as far as I'm aware, maybe security through obscurity. Because did they not tell us about that before and only revealed it now? Like the, the, in other words, that they have backstops against abuses? Yeah, the second level. I don't think we knew about the second level of the hash. Right, which is, I mean, it's fine, but like, I, I, I don't know. In one, one respect, you think, why wouldn't you brag about that, Apple? But in another respect, maybe it <laughs> makes them more vulnerable to attacks to try to find the second algorithm and all sorts of stuff like that. I mean, they did tell us about the threshold, and they could have not told us about that. But anyway, I feel like transparency with uh, security-related things is probably better than, you know, keeping the secret secondary server-side hashing algorithm uh, from the public. There have been some Safari 15 updates, and actually there is a new developer beta that I believe was released the day we are recording, which uh, I don't think any of us have really looked at yet. But I have it installed. I installed it 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> I actually... Uh, During the show. Just, oh, well done. I uh, put the public beta, not the developer beta, but the public beta on my phone about a week ago, maybe a little less, and it seems mostly okay. And there's a couple of minor quirks here and there, but for the most part, it seems fine. And And I like the Safari now. I think I would have hated Safari a couple of builds ago, but I, I like it just fine now. Uh, but yeah, so there have been some changes as of beta 6, which is presumably roughly the same public beta that I'm on. Uh, things basically look a bit more normal. Uh, the the tab bar at the bottom, or it's not a tab bar, I suppose, but the bar at the bottom toolbar. isn't quite so, the toolbar, thank you, the, bottom at the, the toolbar at the bottom isn't quite so floaty for the most part. I don't know, it just behaves more logically. Perhaps, Marco, you have more to say about this than I, but these are definitely strong improvements that, that have gotten, so when I you know installed the public beta, I didn't rage quit my phone, <laughs> which is a good thing. Yeah, this so this is actually this shipped uh, last week as part of developer beta six, like this new this new interface. The one that came out today, which or no, I think today's beta seven or eight. Anyway, I think, I think it's seven. I think. Yeah, so the one that came out today, uh, it looks like it's 
pretty similar in most ways. I, I don't I don't see any major changes yet. Um, but yeah, but certainly I've using the one that came out you know last week, uh, beta six that that finally gave it like the big double height toolbar on the bottom, the option to move the address bar back to the top so you can actually configure it to just be like old Safari was. So finally, I think on the iPhone they have come up with a, like a decent good design. Not all parts of it are good. Not all configurations of it I think are good. But you can but you can finally choose which one you want um you know what they did here in some ways is a design failure in the sense that they tried something radically new it didn't work and instead of rolling it back completely they're now just offering a bunch of checkboxes that you can configure it it's like fine you don't like it make it however you want like you know it's kind of that which is not i mean ideally there would just be one design and it would be good enough that everyone would use it um and everyone would understand it um but in the absence of that uh, option, which for some reason they don't appear to be doing, you can actually now configure it in a number of good ways depending on what your preferences are. So now I'm happy with it. Like I know that's yeah, it sounds very entitled, but yeah, now I'm happy with it. <laughs> like they they can ship this, and I think I think what happened is you know they they tried something radical, it didn't work, and they're running out of time. You know the the way they are. They're rushing to like you know nail things down in these last two betas. You know the news came out earlier today that iCloud Private Relay is going to actually launch as a beta feature that I believe is going to be off by default at first, um, and then it'll I guess become out of beta sometime later. Um, you know they're they're clearly like nailing stuff down, getting ready for imminent release. You know I, I think you know this beta that came out today might end up being the last beta before the GM. Probably not. I bet there's going to be one more, but we are getting very, very close to release. And so I think they looked at the Safari design and were like, look, this is still on fire. We need to make people, we need to make something that we can ship to the whole world and not have a massive problem on our hands. So now they they fixed it and it's good. I have not yet used the terrible like Mac and iPad tab redesign, so I don't have anything to say about those. But on the iPhone, the iPhone Safari is now able to be set up in such a way that it's pretty good. I will say with regard to the iPad that I do, for the most part, have, I enjoy Safari. I don't have any major problems with it, except the tabs. Oh my gosh. Like, I don't mind the colors (laughs) bleeding up. That's a big deal. Well, you're right. I don't mind the colors bleeding up. Like, I don't see it as necessary, but I don't mind it. But the thing I mind is I can never friggin' tell which is the active tab. Never. Ever, ever, ever can I tell what the active tab is. And that is absolutely infuriating. Yeah, Stephen Hackett had a good uh, post on 512pixels.net. Uh, the Safari 15 fight isn't over yet, is the title, uh, and it's talking about Mac Safari. Um, and so rather than us uh, talking again about all of our complaints about Mac Safari, just read this blog post. It reiterates all exactly <laughs> the same things, mostly having to do with the tabs, which no longer make any sense now that they have allowed you to revert the design to be more like the old Safari while still keeping the tabs. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to trying the, the Safari and the phone one because... Uh, it's it's kind of surprising to me that they didn't just stick with the bottom toolbar one because really, like as we said in, in many past shows, it was the floating part that was the problem, and it just doesn't float anymore. Now it's just a big, big bar at the bottom, right? And so that's their design stuff at the bottom, and they they found a straightforward way to do it without the weird floating thing that had all sorts of problems. I don't think it's particularly attractive, but you can swipe from side to side to go through tabs. It's closer to the bottom of the phone, which is easier to reach for people with big phones. Uh, you know, like we said, it has all the benefits of their old design. It just gets rid of the terrible parts of it and the giant drop shadow and all the other stuff. But then they gave you the option to basically make it like Safari 14. 
which I have no complaints about because I like Safari 14 and I don't find it hard to reach the top of my phone, but it's, it's just so weird that they, that this is the new Apple of like, not only do we iterate on a design and make changes in response to, you know, internal testing, feedback, whatever they're making changes in response to, but also we hedge our bets by letting you also change it back to the old way, which is so weird. Like it's, you know, yeah, Safari on the Mac does a worse job of that because Safari on the Mac lets you change it back to the old way, but not really. Not really the old way. You get the the <laughs> tabs that the tabs that don't make any sense because they look like the new style tabs, but they're not. They don't change into the address bar. So why do they look like the address bar? And that's why Casey can't tell what the heck they are. So yeah, the Mac. There's still work to be done, but the Mac is on a, kind of on a different beta cycle than the phone, and it's going to be released. I, the Mac OS is going to be released later anyway. So the Mac still has time. But just FYI, if you thought this was the end of Safari 15, uh, the Safari 15 watch, uh, it probably isn't at least on the Mac. I'd say that's fair. Possibly the iPad, too. Do you think, like, the reason they keep doing these, you know, radical design and then uh, either step it back or uh, make an option to undo it, basically, is that a sign of, of like, problems in the flow? Or do you think that's just, like, the maturity of a large company doing large things? Like, it, it, in some ways, like, is is this a sign of something being wrong or is it a sign of, like, how big these things now are and that they're trying really ambitious things? I mean, I think it's a sign that like what 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 uh, what would stop this from happening is another way of looking at this. Like if you think this is if let's surmise that this is a bad thing, what does it take to stop this sequence of events from happening? What what you need to stop it from happening is somebody with, you know, better instincts to say no to it. And as as mentioned, we talked about this in the past you really don't want the whole rest of the company to have veto power over what your group is doing. Like some group is responsible for the UI in Safari and that's their job. And other people can have opinions, but in the end you hire these people to make Safari for iOS and they should be able to do what you hired them to do rather than like, Oh, well we did it. But someone who's on like the, you know, the, the mail team thinks it's bad. So we can't ship it. Like a big big wig manager on the mail team says this is a bad interface and so now we can't. It's like, no, they're in charge of mail. They're not in charge of mobile Safari. Like you have to allow the people you hire to do their jobs. So the only way to stop something like this from happening is not to have some sort of weird organization where everyone has veto power over everyone else. Like that's incredibly dysfunctional. But as you go up the org chart, not laterally, but upwards from the org chart, and it's very difficult to do that in Apple's very flat organization, probably the, the biggest big wig who's in charge of like iOS software, like they probably report right up to the CEO. They did it back in the Steve Jobs days anyway, or like one step away from that. So there's a very small number of people who properly should have veto power. Uh, and in Apple, there's nobody in those one or two positions above this, this uh, whoever has final say in this type of thing, who had good enough instincts or taste to stop this from shipping and having WWDC sessions about it, I guess, right? And in the old days, that was Steve Jobs. And his taste wasn't always good. He had terrible ideas sometimes. He shipped things with leather stitching on them. Like, it's not, <laughs> let's not deify Steve Jobs' taste. But the fact is, a lot of stuff that didn't make it out the door because the one bigwig guy, the CEO, didn't like it. Um, would Steve Jobs have stopped this? Uh, maybe. I think he would have stopped the floating blob because it's too fidgety. But lots of other things that we don't like, he wouldn't have stopped because his taste was super weird. Um, but th- but that's it. That's the only way you can really stop this from happening. So I feel like it's not a strategy to say, you know, step one, hire Steve Jobs. Like, that's not a viable strategy. And again, it's not even foolproof. So I would say that this is not the sign of an organization that has any sort of 
organizational problems. Like I think it's structured the right way. I think what happened had to happen in this way to be a healthy organization. But it is a sign that perhaps some of the people who actually do define and decide what the UI should be for mobile Safari uh, have some not great ideas. <laughs> right, have some, not, not ideas. Have some not great. It's not the ideas because everyone's like, all ideas are great. Let's hear it. Let's try it or whatever. But like their their value system, the, the 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 values that they use to judge whether a thing that they've tried is successful or not, their values don't match well with the values of Apple's uh, Apple as a company. I feel like because that in the end that's what it comes down to. It's not like Apple's customers made them change this, right? Apple as a company decided to list the, the, the way they decide what feedback they will listen to and what feedback they will ignore. It's Apple's values that determines that because everybody somewhere hates something that Apple does. Like no matter what Apple does, <laughs> you can find a bunch of people who don't like it. Right. But only, Apple only takes that to heart and acts on it. If the, if Apple says, you know what, this subset of people who don't like this thing, we agree with them. They're right. This, this could be better. It, it is worse than ways X, Y, and Z. Right. So I feel like the, the reason this got out is, Somewhere there is a mismatch between the values, the value system used to judge the success of the work within, you know, the mobile Safari group and the values of Apple as a whole. I, I don't begrudge Apple trying something. It's it's so tough because on the one side, we'll tell you like, oh, Apple should try things more and get feedback more and, and let the outsiders be involved more. Uh, and then in the next breath, we'll tell you, well, what the hell were they thinking? Why did they release this ever? And I think it's possible for both those things to be true, but it's, it's, it's tough, especially with Apple, you know, you, they, they proclaim that their, their stuff is so well designed. It's so well thought out. Remember when they used to say it just works too. That was fun. Um, but nevertheless, it, it, it's, it's a tough thing to figure out internally, much less externally. Like what do we allow to leak out and when do we allow it to happen? Do we present this perfectly wrapped package and only when it's perfectly wrapped that in, that we will let it out of Apple Park? Or do we show kind of the build process and let people get involved and see, see what happens? And in this case, I admire them for letting the, the kind of the world get involved with with, you know, kind of voting on on what they think, but I don't know. It seems to me like anyone with any amount of taste would have seen that this was a flawed design from the get-go. That being said, where it's landed now, I'm pretty happy with. Like the left, particularly on the phone, the left to right swipey on the bottom uh, is super convenient. I think Marco, you had brought that up a minute ago. Uh, and, and having the address bar at the bottom is great for those of us who don't have miniature phones like Marco. So no matter how you slice <laughs> it, is it is good. Hey, my miniature phone has a heart too. It has feelings. <laughs> it doesn't have battery life, but it has feelings. <laughs> you know what else doesn't have battery? life my watch my 40 millimeter series six whatever it is it's i typically charge it a little bit in the middle of the day but if i don't i know it because holy cow yeah i have by the way i have for the record i have i'm down to 89 percent battery health after about a year on the mini which i think is the, the biggest loss i've ever gotten in a year i wonder what mine is now we're now we're on a tangent of a tangent let's let's all look <laughs> uh, battery battery health 90 percent on my 12 pro oh okay so yeah you know you're doing not too not too much better, one percent better. Not too stellar. Although I will say, for better or worse, potentially worse, I do charge using Qi almost exclusively. It's very rare that I charge with anything but Qi. And I, I, my gut tells me, although it may be completely wrong, my gut tells me that that is not helping my battery health at all. Well, I, I think it's 
I mean, so keep in mind also, like with the the new phones with with you know, modern OSs do that weird thing where they don't even charge all the way until you're going to wake up soon, right? Yeah. So yeah, like, yeah, there's yeah. stuff like that that actually is helping. Um, but overall, yeah, I mean, Qi charging is not great because for the, for you know preserving the lifespan of lithium ion batteries, charging them in a hot environment is not great, and Qi adds heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that wouldn't otherwise be there from from the inefficiency. So it's not great from that point of view. But I don't know how much. Like I don't I don't know if we have good information on like how much does Qi versus Lightning charging matter in terms of battery lifespan. Like yes, charging a battery in you know in in constant heat is not great. But is that enough to make a difference with that amount of heat over the typical lifespan of a phone? You know, versus just its natural degradation or the the degradation introduced by things like constantly cy- like cycling it down a lot every day or fast charging it, which is also probably worse for it because um, that's you know, charging it faster, introducing more heat is, is probably not good either. So there's, there's also all sorts of other factors with the way we use our phones these days that I don't know how much Qi actually matters. But something I've been needling on for about a month now is... I feel like Apple is fighting a PR war with themselves. (laughs) Like I'm going to blow through a handful of selections over the last month, month and a half of Apple just doing things that most of the public thinks are gross or wrong or certainly not desirable or what's the Merlinism. They're not wholesome. Um, And it's been going on kind of a lot recently And it's really kind of weirding me out that this is consistently happening. I feel like every week there's some new brouhaha about Apple. And yes, of course, most of you will say, well, it's been happening forever. Yeah, I get that. But I feel like a lot of times it'll be somebody saying, oh, you know, Apple's Apple's doing this thing that's wrong, somebody from the outside. Whereas I would argue a lot of this stuff, and I'm going to go through it in a minute, is happening internally and just leaking out into the real world, or it's it's Apple making pro- proclamations about how great they are, only to have them backfire. And so, I'm not terribly interested, uh, unless the two of you are, in in going through the particulars about any one of these things. But I'd like you to take you through a timeline and and start with Thursday, July fifteenth, when. Uh, this is shortly after Apple had announced that they were going to start bringing people back, which they've since backpedaled on. Um, but they said, oh, we're going to bring people back. We're going to do a hybrid model. And I, off the top of my head, I think it was like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, Monday and Friday, you can work from home. And apparently they've been real jerks about it, which is of no great surprise. Uh, I've talked to many birdies who are saying that a lot of people are leaving because of it. Uh, maybe that's hearsay, maybe or that is hearsay, maybe that's not true, but that's what I'm hearing. But, you know, there's a Verge article, Apple employees say the company's cracking down on remote work. One employee said in Slack that Apple even denied their ADA, American Disability Act Association, something like that, uh, work from home accommodation. So even though this person, according to the government, deserved to work from home, apparently Apple said tough nuggies, if you were to believe them. That's Thursday, July 15th. Moving right along, Wednesday, the 4th of August, Apple places a program manager on on administrative leave per her request after accusations of a toxic workplace. Again, I'm not really looking to litigate these particular points, but uh, apparently a woman at Apple had, and I don't have her name in front of me, I'm sorry, um, had uh, some seemingly legitimate complaints about a really toxic workforce, and Apple basically said, eh, no, you're fine. And she said, well, that's kind of bogus. Can we, you know, work this out? And apparently they're working it out. That was Wednesday, the 4th of August. Thursday, the 5th of August, CSAM stuff. So literally the next day, the completely bungled rollout of all the CSAM protections and so on and so forth. So that's Thursday, the 5th. 
Monday the 9th, Apple shuts down employee-run surveys on pay. So Cher Scarlett is an Apple employee and has been trying very, very diligently to get an understanding of whether or not pay is equitable amongst gender, amongst roles, amongst locations, uh, and and several other facets. And so uh, Cher was trying to get Apple employees to voluntarily fill out information about, you know, what they're making, what their role is, etc. And apparently Apple's been shutting this down more and more and more violently. That was Monday, the 9th of August. Monday, the next Monday, the 16th of August, Apple forces FlickType Watch out of the App Store. So this was a an app that I guess would let you do kind of like a swipey keyboard thing on your watch, which unbeknownst to me, as so many things are, I'm really, I'm, I need to get better about this, but unbeknownst to me, apparently this was really important for people that had accessibility needs. And so a lot of people would use this keyboard in order to respond to text messages and things like that. And uh, Miguel de Casa, who is a friend of the show, had pointed out that this is one of the things that uh, Apple had previously touted as being one of their favorite apps in the App Store for accessibility. Well done, guys. And then uh, just a couple of days ago, Monday, the 23rd of August, Apple employees are now organizing under the banner hashtag Apple2, which is in the spirit of Me Too. So this is, what, like six or seven items over the course of a month where something Apple has done, is doing, or didn't do, or whatever, is causing like quite the blow up. And I feel like they are just fighting a PR war on themselves. And this is very very unlike Apple. And typically, they're so quiet, they're so reserved, they only speak when they are sure they have everything right. It's just very, very, very surprising to me. And and if you guys don't have thoughts about it, we can just let that one, we can let that marinate and move on. But if either of you guys have anything to add, I'd, I'd be very curious to hear what your take is. I was going to like dive into the title that you gave this for the topic. Apple's fighting a PR war against itself and say like, what does that actually mean? What are you trying to say with that title? Like more precisely, uh, you didn't dig into it in this description, but I think like the spirit of it, like the way I, at first I read it and it made perfect sense, but then I read it again. I'm like, no, it doesn't make any sense, but I feel like, <laughs> I, I feel like the spirit of it, let me try to expand on what I think the spirit of it is, right? So lots of people, as you, as you noted, but people probably didn't hear. So I'm going to say it again. They're going to say people always are criticizing Apple. It's like they're the biggest company in the world, super popular to like, of course, there's going to be negative stories about Apple. Like that's not new. It's been happening the whole life of the company. And just as they've gotten more powerful and more popular, it just happens even more and more. So this is not a trend. You're not noticing anything new. Uh, why are you even talking about this? There's always negative stories about Apple. Hell, half the things we do on the show, some people will say, oh, you're always saying <laughs> negative things about Apple. Is this what you're talking about on the show? Or like, we're you're part of the whole same problem, right? But I think what is different about this set of items or most of the set of items that you've gathered up here and it uh, connects to the fighting a PR war on itself is these are stories that uh, conflict with Apple's uh, image of itself and the image they project to the world. Very often the negative stories about Apple are something that is negative, perceived to be negative by the world and certainly by whoever is writing the story, but that Apple would consider an asset. Like, I don't know, like, uh, I mean, this is this is kind of fraught because of the antitrust stuff, but like, oh, the App Store, why can't I put third, you know, why, why can't we have third-party app stores? Why does everything have to go through the App Store? Apple would say, I know you don't like that decision, but we think it's perfectly in keeping with Apple's philosophy of having things be proprietary and having us control them and stuff. Like, or, or you go back even farther, like, 
why can't I build a PC clone and run macOS on it, right? People hate that. It's a negative story for the, you know, for de- literally decades. They're like, why doesn't Apple license the operating system that Microsoft is eating their lunch because they insist on making the hardware and the software and they crack down on clone makers. Negative story after negative story about that. But Apple would say, yeah, that's that we see that's a negative story, but our our conception of ourself is not threatened by that. We know that we're not letting you make Mac clones, except for that one time we did, which was a mistake. Um, but you know, we know we're not <laughs> letting you run macOS on on cheap generic PC hardware. Like that's a strategy. We're doing that on purpose. That fits with our image of ourselves. That fits with how we present ourselves to the world. We build the whole widget. It's an integrated experience. It all works together. We control everything about it, which is why it's nicer than your PC, right? But these stories, all this stuff, are negative stories that fly pretty much exactly counter to how Apple thinks of itself and to how Apple Apple presents itself to the world. Apple wants to think of itself and wants to present itself to the world as a company that is fair and equitable to its employees, that it's a good place for anyone to work, that it is a place where they are fighting against workplace harassment, discrimination, so on and so forth. Apple doesn't say that it's perfect, like, but they, they, you know, Apple tries to hold itself accountable and says, here are the values we believe in, and if we find out something is wrong, we will try to remedy it, and this is what we're shooting for. But these are stories about Apple doing the opposite and saying, uh, no, we don't want you to do a survey of employees to find out how everybody makes. Like, despite the fact that it's against the law for Apple to literally stop that, Apple finds technicality and says, well, we can't stop you from doing it, but if you do it in, and involve Apple systems in any way, like if you post it on an internal Apple bulletin board, if you use your company, you know, supplied computer to do it, like there's all sorts of these technicalities where Apple can strongly discourage slash squash this, especially if it happens inside the company where it said, Apple can say, we're not breaking the law, but the spirit is you don't want employees to know what all their coworkers are making because what you're hiding something like it doesn't like that is not in keeping with hey we want to have an equitable workplace where everyone feels welcome and where the pay is fair and so on and so forth right they do all these readouts about how well they're doing and hiring and diversity and all that other stuff but their direct actions counter that right the app store one is you know they're always doing bad app store rejections that that is probably in <laughs> keeping with, with apple's image of itself and that yes yeah, and not to reject things and it's, and it's stupid but uh um, yeah, and Apple too, the, the harassment stuff, the, the CSAM stuff, Apple's, in, we talked about this in many past shows, Apple's whole thing is we're the privacy company. We want to do things for maximum privacy. And in this case, it's a little bit more nuanced because Apple thinks it is doing something that's in keeping with privacy, but the world disagrees. So that's maybe in a slightly different category. But still, the PR rollout is against Apple's normal practice of having a very controlled, careful PR message. And in this case, setting aside the actual features, the rollout of them, the sort of you know, how do, how were they presented to the world backfired in a big way? Like, you know, even if you think the features themselves are fine, the way Apple presented it was not in keeping with Apple's usual image of itself as we know how to communicate like what we like Apple's one of Apple's biggest strengths is they choose very carefully what they want to communicate and they make sure that that is the message that gets out. That, it, that, you know, that someone doesn't take what they say and run with it and, and have a, a different kind of story. Like the story that Apple wants to see written is the story that fits with the message they're putting out. And Apple is so good at that, except for in the case of this stuff, which totally messed it up. Um, yeah, so I, I feel like this is, I don't know about, uh, oh, and the same thing with the remote, the work from home thing. Like, uh, again, our, could be argued that that's in keeping with Apple's tradition of having everybody work there, but it's, it is against the tradition of trying to be accommodating and welcoming and so on and so forth 
you know, especially like, oh, all the stories about how Apple is very accommodating during the COVID crisis and everything. That's in keeping with Apple's corporate philosophy. It's extenuating circumstances. It, you know, we will accommodate for that. And you could even say, hey, well, we have a new policy. Even post-COVID, we're going to have a new policy. But it's just, it didn't go far enough. But yeah, Apple being at war with its employees is not in keeping with the image it presents to the world. So <laughs> that, you know, that is just, you know, a bad PR situation. Like, you don't want the story to be that, you know, all that stuff you say is BS because look at how you act. You don't want to look like, you don't want to look hypocritical, right? You want the image that you present to the world to be supported by everything you do. And in in this case, you know, Apple might feel uh, like that it's losing control of what is coming out of the company. Like their, their, you know, culture of secrecy and everything has in the past probably helped with this. But people feel emboldened to say, look, uh, this is going on in the workplace and we don't think it's right. And Apple, I dare you to punish slash fire me for telling the world that this is going on. And Apple's like, OK, we'll take that bet. We will punish you. And it just makes them look worse. <laughs> right. Yep. So, you know, obviously the solution here is Apple uh, either this, you know, stop doing things that are in conflict with the image you present to the world or change the image you present to the world. And I would suggest doing the first one. Because most of the things Apple is doing, again, smell like they've come up when we've talked about App Store or other things. Like it smells like there's someone somewhere in the organization who has as their goal to like, you know, like so, someone thinks it's really bad, for example, for employees to know how much they all their their coworkers make, right? And so they're just doing anything they possibly can to stop that from happening, without thinking about is this. Is you know is my goal in keeping with Apple's values? They just say like no, th- like this this is what I want. Maybe I work in the HR department and it will hurt my ability to hire, and it will I have to rebalance everyone's salary, or I don't want the world to know how unfairly the women are being paid in the company. Like there is reasons why they're doing it, but something else in the organization should be overriding that their you know sort of localized self interest in the HR department to say that's not how we do things at Apple, right? If they want to organize a survey. A, it's illegal for us to actually stop them. So why are you even bothering to like find all these technicalities, right? Because they're just going to eventually do it anyway. They'll put up a Google Sheet and they'll talk about it after work off of Apple Scan. Like, you know, and and B, if someone knows that you've been spending all this time trying to squash this, it just makes us look worse. Like the bottom line is, do we care about equitable pay or do we not? And if we do care about it, we should have the guts to say, here's what it's like at Apple right now. And if it's bad, say we know it's bad and we're working to improve it in eight ways, X, Y, and Z, which they mostly do with a lot of other stuff. But then this is, you know, counter to that entire narrative. So what you don't want is a month like this where the accumulation of stories slowly convince people that Apple is not the company that it thinks it is. And Apple is not the company that maybe you thought it was. Are we the baddies now? Yeah, and it it is, I I will go back to like, yeah, if you're the biggest company in the world, people are always going to be trying to tear you down. Like, I still think in the grand scheme of things, Apple is way better than average on all of these things, right? And a part of the reason these stories get traction is because we expect so much of Apple and because they're such a pinnacle, you know, they're up on a pedestal. People want to tear them down and any little thing they do, you're going to yell them about. But anyone who has worked literally any job ever, uh, (laughs) you can think of much worse things that have happened to them at their job or they've seen happen in their job or that are systemic across their other giant company that they've worked for that, you know, make these things look like nothing. But, you know, that's, that's the, you know, it's like Marco and his dependencies, the beauty and the curse of Apple, that uh, we, we hold them <laughs> to a higher standard because in general they are better. 
and we're big fans of them and they want them to do well. And Apple itself holds itself to a high standard. That's part of the reason it's, it's presentation to the world is to talk about their values and how they're working to improve. And, you know, like, again, there's room for criticism in all of them, whether it's labor in China or how they deal with China at all or cozying up to Trump at the Mac Pro factory. Like, there's always things to criticize. But through it all, I feel like the, what Apple has tried very hard to hold on to is their values like this is what apple stands for and though we may fall short we will acknowledge when we fell short and we will try to do better and make changes and seeing apple actively work against forces within its own company that are trying to improve it right like say i'm reporting harassment take care of the harassment don't yell at me i'm trying to help make the pay more equitable don't stop the survey you should be asking for the well they don't need the results or they know what everyone's being paid but anyway they should, <laughs> you should be taking this feedback and acting on it not trying to you know stop me or whatever and again, I'm going to set aside the App Store rejections. We've, we've spoken enough about that. From our perspective, it's a terrible thing to do to have these arbitrary and bad re- uh, rejections. But there's so many of those, and it's so difficult to tell which are the good or which are the bad. And, you know, that's a that's a long-running thing that maybe Congress will sort out eventually. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah it's just, I just hope Apple takes all the – kind of like the Safari 15 stuff. Like sometimes things go badly and you have a bad result. But you can you can snatch victory from the jaws of defeat by saying we're going to learn from this. We'll correct our mistakes. We'll take remedial action, and the next time we'll do better. Uh, and that's what Apple should do in all of these circumstances. But the first step is acknowledging that you're making a mistake. Like you know, stop doing the things that are bad, and then you know, go through the rest of the process. Yeah, John, I. I- Thank you, because I think my thesis was too brief, and and you did an excellent job of capturing what I was trying to say, which is exactly that, that this is incongruent with my perception of Apple, and certainly the perception of Apple I think Apple wants me to have, and and that is, in short, what I'm seeing over the last month, which is really too bad, and I agree with everything you just said. So thank you for, for being the chief summarizer-in-chief for me. Uh, and one, actually, one, one more thing on this. like the We keep talking about Apple uh, like as if it's this disembodied entity. But Apple is made up of all of these people. And on, uh, the, the nature of companies is the people are, is not made up of all those people evenly, right? <laughs> you know, so there's thousands of employees and the, you don't average them all together and get Apple. Uh, the CEO counts for, has a much higher weighting factor. And then as you go down the org chart, you know, the weighting factors get smaller and smaller and the, the rank and file people have a much lower weighting factor in the average that is Apple. But when we talk about Apple's values and living up to its own values or whatever, these employees who are internally agitating to make things better are Apple in the same sense that the CEO is Apple. There's way more of them, but their weighting factor is way, 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 way lower. And in the end, they have a boss who has a boss who has a boss who tells them what to do and has the power to fire them, right? So that's the nature of companies. And so I think when we talk about Apple, like these employees pushing back are in fact embodying the values of Apple because they make up the values of Apple. Like the actual, on you know, boots on the ground values of Apple is embodied by its employees. And in that way, all of these stories do reflect the mass of Apple living up to its ideals these people don't run Apple. And that's the disappointing thing. So when, you know, so when we're talking about Apple, we're talking about the people who are in charge of Apple, not the majority of the employees at Apple, who mostly are like, ever, you know, Apple employees that I've met are always just great, enthusiastic people with great values who want all the best for everybody else who works at Apple. 
And it's just, it doesn't, you know, you put a few people with bad ideas in the wrong place with the wrong motivations, and it can really make the whole company take a, a wrong turn. I think there also might be like deep-rooted structural or cultural issues that are much, much harder to, you know, try to fix from anywhere, let alone, you know, from the top or from the, you know, from the bottom or from anywhere. Because, you know, I, I think somebody, I think it was on Dubai Friday, famously said that success hides problems. That was also them, right? That follow-up on that. What? Are you trying to attribute that to me? It's, it's Ed Catmull. <laughs> Wasn't that Catmull? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Apple's been so successful that, it's easy for everyone at the company, you know, at, at all levels, to get into the mindset of, we, we know what's best, obviously, because look at how well we're doing. Look at this great stuff we're making. We're really changing the world. We're doing great work. We're making great things. So therefore, we are great, and, and the way we do things is great. And we've heard over the years many common themes that go something like, the reason why this thing is the way it is is because a middle manager somewhere along the chain of command is either, you know, not very good or being a jerk in some way or is responding to dysfunctional incentives that the company culture has set up. Like, you know, it's because their, you know, their project, even though it shouldn't go in a certain direction, they push it that direction because of their own like career political motives and incentives. We we've heard this over and over again, over many years. This is not new. It does seem like Apple is like any other big company. You have people problems, you have incentive problems, you have cultural problems. And as the company has gotten bigger, that hasn't, uh, you know, obviously gotten better. It's, it, if anything, it's gotten worse. Um, and 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 I do hear more about like the the depth of that chain of command under Tim Cook as opposed to what it was under Steve Jobs, but that also could be attributed to the company's growth during that time. So it's hard to know if it's like, you know, is this the Tim Cook way, or is this just as the company got bigger, this happened. Um, but we know that they have problems. We know that there are problematic bosses, there are problematic managers, and we also know that Apple's not super great all the time at, at recognizing when it isn't the best, recognizing when, they ha- when they've done something that, that isn't good, it, that isn't changing the world for the better, that isn't the best it could be. Sometimes it takes them a long time to recognize that. Sometimes their own internal culture seems to prevent them from considering that as, as even an option. See also America. Uh, so it's very hard for them to seemingly to recognize when they have an internal problem or, or hell, an external problem, like when, when they have a product problem. It's very hard for them to recognize that sometimes. I hope some of these massive PR blunders they've created for themselves over the last you know year or so, but you know especially recently as Casey has outlined here, I hope maybe this is shining a light on their own cultural problems to the people who can who matter, who can you know the people up top who can who can maybe start to change some of these incentives or, or implement better processes for dealing with problems when they arise or change policies in certain ways, change attitudes in certain ways, because. They are a big company like any other. They have problems like any other. They're going to have jerky bosses here and there like any other. And they have to recognize that's going to be a thing that they have to deal with and put systems in place to deal with it better than the way they're dealing with it right now. Because it does seem like that's not as good as it could be. So I I hope this has been kind of a wake-up call. Because, you know, one other thing, you know, regarding the PR tone from Apple recently it does, you know, we've we've commented a lot in recent years about how it seems like they're they misread the room. They put something out there that goes over like a lead balloon, 
and they seem shocked at this. Like they seem totally caught off guard that the world didn't love something they put out there or something they said as much as they did. And I think this all is related that, you know, it's, it's all like this company has been so successful for so long and they think everything they do is gold and they, they can't tell when their you know, stuff stinks. And, and that, I hope we see movement in that area. I think we might be slowly seeing them get better at that. Um, but, but I, I do think they, I hope they keep going on that. I hope they keep pushing on that because this has been a problematic area for some time now. And if Apple keeps telling themselves and if all the, all the managers and, and, you know, chain of command inside of Apple, if they keep telling themselves that they're great, they're going to keep missing problems and they're going to keep putting their foot in their mouths and losing their best people and, and other problems that are avoidable if they go in with a little bit more humble attitude and say, you know what, we're, we're not great in all ways here. Let's put better processes in place. Let's start changing some of our attitudes, some of our culture, some of our workplace environment rules and things like that to actually better address this stuff. And speaking of like things changing in, in recent months and years, um, one change that I have definitely noticed uh, is that employees who are cur- current employees of Apple have felt, I don't know if they felt more free, more of them are speaking publicly while employed at Apple, which is a thing that almost never happened, even about the most trivial things, let alone like, let me air my internal HR related grievances about Apple while I'm still employed at Apple. <laughs> it was unheard of. And part of that was, I mean, you just mentioned Steve Jobs as someone at the top with slightly better taste vetoing things. He was also a massive authoritarian and he would probably fire these people on the spot if he was still alive because, you know, oh, the, yeah. the the environment of fear that caused everyone to be silent was not a good thing. It was, you know, the external effect of that was Apple had very controlled messaging and no one ever said anything, but internally, like, success hides problems, so does silence. Silence hides problems too. So who knows what terrible things could have been going on back in the era where if you said anything on Twitter, if you acknowledged that you were an employee of Apple and said something that got picked up by some news org, it was like, you know, if Steve catches, if that elevates to the point where it comes up to Steve's desk, it would say, can we just fire that person? And maybe your boss will argue for another really important that the only person who knows how this thing in the kernel works. And he maybe he would grumble. But obviously, you know, if you're a low level or a new employee, like, the idea of being fired for doing something like that is a thing that happens in small startups with tyrants who run them. And also, <laughs> at various times, at one of the biggest tech companies in the world when Steve Jobs was there. Because, you know, one of his less uh, less desirable attributes, let's say, was his authoritarian bent about uh, command and control of the company that was his that he was running. All right. So the change that has taken place recently is employees are like poking their little heads out of their holes and being like, I'm going to make a tweet about work. I'm not going to tell you like Apple's secret product. I'm not even going to tell you what team I'm on because they still are too afraid to do that. They won't even like, I work at Apple on software, right? But a few of them are coming up and saying, here's something about the workplace at Apple. Even just saying a good thing, like, oh, I really like at Apple because we have this group and we talk and my manager says this or whatever. It's like, I can't believe I'm hearing about things that are going on inside Apple from someone who still works there. Even hearing people, I've been outside Apple for five years and I'm finally ready to tweet about it, right? Even hearing that used to be a big thing. But now, and then setting aside the people who are like, look, I'm pissed at Apple. I brought this to HR. I brought them all this evidence about all this terrible things happening to me. Here's a screenshot of a message conversation I had with my boss that I sent them and Apple said it was fine. What do you think? Like, we're all just holding our breath and going, is that person going to be fired tomorrow? The answer is no, they weren't fired, right? So how does the culture change at a company? Obviously, leadership can change it. But in the absence of that, when leadership is sort of not doing the right thing, 
culture can start to change when people in the rank and file start to air their grievances in public and let these stories get picked up by the press and put pressure on the company. And yeah, a lot of them are probably going to get fired or sidelined or put on administrative leave or like the company will find excuses to fire them, do all those terrible things that companies do. And that will also be a story. And that's not how Apple should be reacting to this. But I, I feel like that, you know, essentially brave uh, Apple employees are attempting to change the culture. And I think they are having some tiny bit of success. Uh, you know, even if it's just in the form of the the pressure applied by the press and podcasts to talk about Apple or whatever, because when this stuff was going on and we didn't know about it, we could just say, oh, Apple, they're so disciplined. They have great messaging and look at their products. It's all wonderful. Steve Jobs is great. I'm sure all these same things were going on, you know, years and years ago. We just didn't hear about them. And so I would rather hear about them. And if hearing, if, if this is the only way, like, you know, like the app store running to the press never helps except it totally helps so <laughs> now that i'm telling all employees like risk your job and your livelihood and your future career by you know publicly airing all of your grievances about the apple workplace like no you can never ask that of people they shouldn't have to do this this is what leadership should do and to be fair i think there's lots of great leadership in apple that is also working in this direction but there's enough bad spots in that org chart that apple is doing some things that are very counter to the values that the vast 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 majority of people at apple hold um, and that's not a tenable situation. So kudos to all the Apple employees being brave. I hope it works out for you. And, I, you know, and I, again, I want to acknowledge that like 99% of Apple is amazing and great. And it only takes just, uh, you know, 1% or less doing the wrong thing in the right positions in the company to really mess things up for everybody else. Colin writes, are there any tips for organizing an Apple Photos library of about 30,000 photos? The conditions you can put on smart albums don't seem robust enough. Mostly I'm just going through them by hand, deleting and sorting the last 20 years. How can I better zero in on significance? Uh, I feel like my completely esoteric bananas approach to this is probably not helpful. So, John, you seem to be the most invested in Apple Photos of the three of us. Tell me, what's the right answer? My main tip is... Uh, use the favoriting feature, the little heart thing, right? And this is this sounds, it's trickier than that because if you just use that feature and you fave every photo, you haven't organized anything, right? So there's a ratio. In other words, you know, or if you if you fave one out of every 10,000 photos, then you have three faves and that doesn't help you either, right? So you have to sort of find, calibrate your, fa- your sense of faveness and what you want to do is basically, I should look at the, the math to see what ratio, uh, you know, uh, what is my fave ratio? Is it one out of every 10, one out of every 100, every 50? But like you want to you want to be honest and say, is this a picture that I would consider printing, putting in a frame that I'd want to see in, in a screensaver? Like, is it a good photo? Right. And if you're honest with yourself, you don't have that many of those. You got a thousand pictures of your kids. But what are your favorite ones? Right. And so I would say. Go. I mean, if you really want to do this, and this is the question from Colin, I want to organize my 30,000 photos, you're going to have to go through all 30,000 and fave the good ones. And when you're done with that incredible laborious process, because you're starting behind 30,000, right? W- then you click on the little favorites thing in the sidebar. Suddenly, your 30,000 photo collection becomes 1,000 photos, let's say, right? And 1,000 photos, all of which are really good, now you're getting somewhere. You can put those in random play in your screensaver, Right. You can, when you want to find a good picture of your kid when they were five, click on favorites first, scroll backwards to the year they were five, you're looking at 30 pictures, right? You're looking at a screen full of pictures. 
that's the way to do it. And, you know, the number one tool, like that's not the only tool, but that is the easiest and the most important one. And that also means every time you import pictures from now on, you fave the good ones. It's just an ongoing process. I know going through 30,000 is going to seem like a lot. It's not that bad. Consider it like picking, right? You obviously can delete the ones that are blurry or terrible or out of focus, you know, or like badly framed or whatever. Fave the really good ones. I'm not saying you have to edit the really good ones. I'm not saying you have to do any of them. Just fave them. That is the most important. And then beyond that, you can organize them into albums, put tags on them, use the face recognition. There's lots and lots of stuff you can do before that, but that's my number one tip. Marco, any thoughts? Nope. I don't organize my photo library at all. Yeah, for me, it's just by date. And I am trying to be somewhat diligent about the people feature in Apple Photos and like, you know, making sure that I'm that that the photos that are claimed to be Declan, for example, are actually actually Declan. But uh, yeah, I I view everything, almost everything I view on the file system by date and in Apple Photos by either date or by location. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty useless in this capacity. Sorry, Colin. Sam writes, how does one Google for specific tech problems without receiving incredibly vague and unrelated answers? I'm sure you've all faced this at some point. Search engines will always push the most generic catch-all articles because that's what gets the most clicks. I, I, I don't have any good recipes for this either, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that John does. Oftentimes, I'll just blast, I'll blast through the first few uh, results knowing full well that they're going to be shovelware. And then after you know page two or three, I'll finally find the thing that's useful. But John, you probably have some science that you can perform here. Yeah, the, the sort of failure modes are familiar for anyone who's ever tried to Google for like best refrigerator. Like, you know, it's just, spam links where people just make make web pages by copying pasting data from other things so they come up as the number one through 100 results on best insert name of product right that's the one noise problem the other one is i'm having a technical problem no one's doing seo to get this but i don't like i don't know what to type to describe it like you know computer won't work screen frozen like those are not going to get you anywhere because it's too generic and people have been having those problems forever and it's it's a sign that you don't know enough about what's going on to formulate a good question. So there's two strategies that I want to recommend. The first is the uh, sort of, if you're a tech nerd, you probably, this probably won't occur to you because it seems like it shouldn't work and it's like the wrong way to do things. But I'm here to tell you that you need to go against your instincts and try this, which is type out like, you know, it's, it's kind of like rubber ducking. Pretend someone came into the room and said, hey, what's the problem? And you had to explain it to them. Whatever you would say to them, type that into the Google search box. You're like, but I'm going to say seven sentences to them. You want me to type that whole big thing into the search box? Yeah. Type, uh, you know, I was running Adobe Photoshop and every time I click on the bucket tool, uh, you know, it, it makes a beeping noise and then the screen turns blue and I can't get it to stop. Every single word I just said, put that into the Google search box. And you're like, there's no way that's going to work. It's it's ridiculous. It's all that, like, I, that's just the way I phrased it in a sentence. And it's not, you know, I'm not looking for those words. And what if someone described the problem but they use different words? Just try it. <laughs> the way this works best, obviously, is for non-computer stuff where you say, that person with the brown hair who's been in the movie with, uh, you know, with Tom Cruise, uh, but wasn't his co-star, but it was a different romantic interest type all that into the Google search box. Google <laughs> does amazing things for that. Like you can, again, when you're at like someone, someone's at a table, like who was in that movie? And people are trying to do these, these three word Google queries, just record what they said and put it into the Google. It works great for celebrities, but for computer stuff, it can sometimes work. That's strategy. Number one strategy. Number two, 
try to fix it yourself until you get an error message. Paste, copy, and paste the error message into it. Because <laughs> that's the secret of, of tech support and tech nerds. The secret of all programming, really, in the modern era is tr- try it. Just try something. Eventually, something won't work, and hopefully, you'll get an error message. And you hope against hope that that error message has enough uniqueness in it. Not too much uniqueness, because you don't want like process IDs or dates or other stuff, right? But just enough uniqueness and put the, yes, put the error message in double quotes. Maybe you'll get zero results, then sort of narrow the double quotes down to just sort of the meat of the thing until you start getting results. Um, those are the main strategies I would employ is the, this is never going to work rubber ducking technique and try it yourself, find an error message, put it in double quotes and narrow the double quotes. Yeah, it's useful to know that like for most, uh, at least on the Mac, most error messages have selectable text these days. Um, so you can you can actually select the text and paste it right into Google if you want. Um, but yeah, this this is a problem. You know, trying to find any information on the web can be pretty difficult these days because there's just so much just spam and algorithmically generated garbage and affiliate marketing sites and stuff. It's really hard. But I think this is you know this is like the skill we've been training our entire lives building up <laughs> you know, as the web has gotten more and more filled with crap. Um, I, I think the, the answer is you just, you know that you're going to wade through a bunch of crap. You, you know, mentally prepare yourself like, all right, fine. I'm going to type in this terrible query into Google. I know I'm going to go through many pages of garbage trying to refine what I'm looking for. You know, you will eventually find it like, and, it it can feel like a long time when you have to do like three or four searches to like finally kind of like narrow in on what you're looking for. But in the, in the reality, you know, you're probably going to have your answer in 45 seconds, <laughs> you know, or something like that. Um, certainly certain areas are, are worse than others. I, I agree with you know, what John said about like, if you're looking for like product recommendations, uh, that's just garbage. Like the reason why wire cutter is so popular is not because they necessarily always have great picks. I, you know, I disagree with many of their picks. It's because there's pretty much nowhere else trustworthy to go. <laughs> like, it's really hard to look anywhere else <laughs> that, for anything. That's, that's why when I, when I Google for things now, I type wire cutter best blender. I don't type best blender. Best blender is a wasteland. Wire cutter best blender is just a convenient way for me to get to wire cutter's latest blender ratings, which I could just <laughs> go to wirecutter.com and click around, but Google makes it faster to type wire cutter best blender. It's the same reason I type, you know, Tom Cruise's movies Wikipedia. Because I don't want results from anywhere else. So I just put the word Wikipedia in the title. And yes, I know I could just do W space with my little shortcut that goes right to the Wikipedia search or whatever. But like, that's, that's, that's I guess, a third strategy. If you know, more or less, somebody has probably has the answer to this, you can just put the word in the query, like Wikipedia or Wirecutter. If you really want to get techie out, you need a site colon in the URL. But like, I don't even think you need to go that far, right? Sometimes you you kind of know where you'd like to find this answer and you could look there first. Like you don't have to go as far as the right like stack overflow, can't use undefined value as hash reference, right? You don't have to type stack overflow because they're usually number one in the search results without the word in there. But wire cutter isn't. You type best blender, forget it. Yeah. Well and, and like and with you know with tech stuff like Stack Overflow, it's useful, you know, I'm sure many of you out there have have noticed that whenever you search for anything that is vaguely, you know, coding related or, or anything that would be would be represented on a Stack Exchange site, uh, like you know, some of their like some of them aren't coding related. Some of them are like you know, sysadmin stuff or just to help with you know your Mac or whatever. And you probably noticed that when you search for anything that has those results, you might find the Stack Exchange site in the top few results, but you will also find seven or eight sites that might even rank above it 
that are all just ripping off Stack Overflow content and republishing yep, it. Yep, yep. And or you know, you find like some, you know, you search for like, hey, what how do I do this thing on my Linux server? Or what does this weird error message from MySQL mean? And you'll find 17 different reproductions of the same like forum thread with different ads injected into each one. <laughs> just like for all these different sites that that all you know are claiming to be independent and original, but of course you can tell they're all just scraping whatever the heck the same original source was, whether it was Stack Overflow or something else. And you, you just kind of you know, as modern internet searchers, you just kind of learn to spot this kind of stuff, and and you start realizing things like what John was saying, like if this is the kind of answer that I already know a pretty trustworthy source will probably have, I will just search for their answer, which again. This is not a great place for the world to be, but it's the place we have. So this is, you know, you start you start realizing, like, okay, well, for these kind of things, I'll add Stack Overflow to the query. So I just go right there. For these kind of things, I'll add Wire Cutter or whatever. You know, that's 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 the world we're in. This incidentally is a good way to judge the health of your website. Someone mentioned IMDb in the chat. Um, IMDb is ostensibly the Internet Movie Database, but every time I want to know something about a movie, I type, you know. Uh, list of Steven Spielberg movies Wikipedia or I type the title of the movie Wikipedia you know why because IMDB is impossible for me to find I want to find out what year was this released and who was the director Wikipedia has that info boom one second it's right there in my <laughs> face IMDB can't find it for the life of me and then it wants me to log in and get pro and it's like forget it so IMDB is failing <laughs> you can tell it's failing and it's, even if it was number one search results like type in the title of the movie like I just you know that's and not that I keep promoting Wikipedia because I have my own problems with it or whatever, but like, you know, the information architecture of your website is bad if people are actively avoiding it, even though it should be, quote unquote, should be the number one Google hit. Finally, Mark Slutsky writes, do I ever need to update Java? Every time this window comes up, I dismiss it. Been doing so for years now. Nothing bad ever seems to happen. But am I wrong to do so? Man, I, I forgot Java was a thing. <laughs> To be honest with you, I cannot remember the last time I've had like a full board Java installation on any of my computers. It's been, I think, longer since I've had a full bore, you know, Windows VM on one of my computers. So this is a screenshot of, I think, the Apple software update dialog. Apple used to ship Java with its computers and eventually it was available as a separate download. Uh, but once you installed it from Apple, like you'd get updates to it. And eventually just, you know, Apple stopped supplying it. I don't think they support it at all anymore. I don't even know what state it up. But this looks like the Apple update dialog. And one of the reasons I put this question in here is in recent years, because I have the I have the non-Apple version of Java at work because I actually needed it for work many, many years ago, right? In recent years, the current owners of Java, I think it's Oracle, right? Um, have changed their like always running updater thing in a way that, I, in an unprecedented way. I've, I've never seen this before. So on my work computer, when the dialogue comes up, like the Oracle Java updater thing, it doesn't say to me, you know, you're you're running this version and this is the version. Do you want to update or whatever? Like the Apple one has like, skip this version, remind me later, install update. So this is, that's you know, the regular Apple dialogue. The, the Oracle whatever dialogue comes up and it's some weird, janky, non-native UI, of course, right? And what it says to me is your computer is running something like this, not exact wording, but your computer is running Java, but you haven't used Java in over two years. Do you want to uninstall Java? We don't recommend you keep it installed if you're not using it. That's what the dialog box says. That's the hmm. first party one? Yes. It, it The first thing it does, it says, hey, it looks like you haven't used Java in a while. We recommend <laughs> that you uninstall it. That's amazing. Which is 
unprecedented. Like even Adobe Flash didn't offer to uninstall itself until it was literally no longer supported at all, right? Like Java is still supported. It's still a thing. It's not like Java is dead, right? It's a very popular language used all the time. Now, I haven't used Java on my Mac for many years and the, the updater knows that and it, it's not just like the default action. It's the first thing it wants me to do. It says you should, and it, like it recommends it. It says you should uninstall it if you're not using it. And it's fascinating. So anyway, for, my answer for Mark is if you're not using Java, even though this thing doesn't say that, like uninstall it, right? Like, you know, go, go to skip this version or whatever its problem is. Right? If you are using Java, update it. Those are your two choices. Because if, so let's say you're not, it's like, well, what if I need Java later? You can always get Java again. It's not going anywhere, right? But if you're, if you're not using it, and I, this dialog box doesn't say whether or not you're using it, right? But if you're not using Java, get rid of it. Like, find the Java uninstaller. I know this is difficult with Apple stuff because they don't provide uninstallers and there's no option to uninstall on this thing. But you can, again, using your new Google school skills that you learned, how to uninstall Java <laughs> for Mac OS, right? <laughs> and you will find, and again, look at the dates and the results or whatever. You will eventually find a way to do it or a link to an uninstaller, Mac OS Java uninstaller, Mac Java uninstaller. Like, you'll, you'll narrow it down pretty quickly. Get rid of it. Don't worry if you ever need it again. Like, you can always reinstall it. Um, so that's my advice. Yeah, I would say don't even decide whether you actually use it or not. Just uninstall it and see if anything breaks. And if anything does break, <laughs> reinstall it. Yeah, it's not dangerous or anything. Like, official, as long as it's not actual malware, it's real Java. Java's fine. Like, you know, it's a thing. You, sometimes you might need to run a Java application. It's perfectly fine. It's not, you know, like I said, the Oracle, which is generally considered to be an evil company, their, their installer is the one that's offering to... Uh, uninstall it so i think they're trying to do the right thing like they don't want you to have an old version of java that you never use on your computer because if it suddenly becomes an avenue for an exploit that reflects badly on oracle i suppose so they're they're saying we the default choice should be a recommendation that you uninstall the software because clearly you're not using it all right thanks to our sponsors this week memberful linode and made in and thank you to our members who support us directly you can join at atp.fm slash join we will talk to you next week now the show is over they didn't even mean to begin because it was accidental. accidental oh it was accidental. accidental john didn't do any research marco and casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental. accidental Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss M-A-R-C-O A-R-M E-N-T Marco Arment S-I-R-A-C So I went to a fish concert. This is extremely exciting to me. So, <laughs> And only you. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I am excited <laughs> about this. I remember talking to you, I thought on... Um, I thought on the show yeah, it about was. how that this I'm talking years ago how that you hate you went to one like years and years and years ago and you hated it and we were talking about it years ago you hated it you thought it was bad you didn't enjoy it blah 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 and then you told us I think 
I, I don't even think it was in the the bootleg. I think it was privately. You had said, "Hey, I'm going to this fish concert." Or no, did you say it publicly? Uh, I said I, I said it on. The, I think it was the bootleg. I don't I don't think it was in the final show. Anyway, it, it doesn't really matter. But one way or another, you said, "Hey, I'm going to this fish concert," and I was stupefied because the, the last I we had spoken about it, it sounded like it was a never again sort of scenario, and. I really miss live music, whether or not anyone listening agrees with my taste in music, and I would assume most of you do not. I really, really love live music, and and I haven't even in the before times it had been a while since I'd been to a concert. Uh, but I am I am very excited, even though I'm not a particularly large fish fan. In fact, I don't particularly like fish very much. I am super excited to hear your report on how it was going to a concert at all. And especially in these oh so unprecedented times. So where did you go? What'd you see? Well, you obviously saw fish, but like, what what happened, man? <laughs> so so I mentioned a few months back that I, I like when we were, we were talking about COVID, you know, a few months back, and, and I mentioned how like I thought it would be really cool to go to one of the first fish concerts, if even possibly the first one after COVID, to just kind of feel that energy to kind of celebrate like the end of COVID and and to feel. I figured it would be like a very culturally significant moment, at least for, you know, for my culture as a fish fan, but just like to, to kind of feel that after COVID. Now, in practice, COVID isn't over and it, it kind of will probably never be over. I think, you know, most of the evidence suggests an, an endemic future, not a not, you know, the end of a pandemic, but, you know, just an, now it's going to be one of these viruses that just is like the flu and cold that it just kind of goes around and, you know, we try to get shots for it here and there and whatever. But anyway, that's for another night. But you know, COVID isn't over. It didn't didn't end. But live music is starting back up, you know, in responsible ways. And when I first said that, I, I was kind of like on the fence about whether I should go because the first scheduled concerts were just going to be like whatever was supposed to happen in 2020. They just changed the year to 2021. And so it was going to it was going to start like in, in June or July. And a lot of the venues they had booked were on the other side of the country. And they, a lot of them are like indoor, like, you know, basketball stadiums and stuff. And, and so the last time I went to a concert was at Madison Square Garden in New York, which is an indoor basketball stadium. <laughs> and and I just, I really, I didn't like a lot of the environment of it. You know, it's, I, I didn't like the massive amount of, of like smoke that collects at the top of stadiums when you have concerts there. Um, you know, the, I didn't have a very good you know, view of the stage or any of the screens, you know, because I kind of got like a last minute ticket from a friend. Um, I, I, I don't know. I didn't know what to do, you know, so, and that was, that was 2009. So that was a long time ago. But I, I had decided after that, like, you know, I don't know if this is actually for me. And so I didn't go to any more shows after that. But because I, I wanted to have this kind of like, you know, quote, end of COVID celebration uh, or, or to feel that, that cultural moment, I started looking. All right, what what about doing the, doing one of these shows this summer? And they actually changed the tour. Like before it started, they 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 revamped the dates and the venues to be all outside venues, and much more of it was happening on the East Coast. So this changed thing. This went from a oh I don't I don't know if I want to fly across the country to go to a basketball stadium into oh they're playing in Atlantic City, New Jersey, which is only a couple hours drive from here on a beach so like okay <laughs> now you have my attention <laughs> all right <laughs> um and so sure enough i uh found a friend who would tolerate the band and we went <laughs> we clearly went. it was not me no it was not you <laughs> although actually all kidding aside i i would have like in in 
very different circumstances. I absolutely would have gone just to experience it. As much as I joke and as much as I give you a hard time, I would, in, in a different set of circumstances, I would have gone. I bet you I would have liked it, but that's neither here nor there. Maybe. I mean, you, you might have had to um, inhale a lot of the smoke that was there in order to like it. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have gone, and it wouldn't have, and it wouldn't have been because of the music. <laughs> so on, on that note, it, keep in mind, this is on a beach with a breeze. So you would expect... <laughs> You wouldn't really notice much smoke happening on a beach with a breeze. Oh, my God. It was so smoky. Like, the whole audience was just... It was it was like a smoke emitter in a game. Like, you just, just the constant upward draft of smoke. <laughs> and I never saw or smelled a single cigarette. <laughs> yeah. None of it was cigarette smoke. Yeah. As far as I can tell, literally none of it. <laughs> cigarettes so that that was kind of a funny detail like it was so it, it there was so much smoke that like i was so i i, I took a friend's um advice uh, and uh and bought like a, a a nice ticket they had like this vip area you could spend a little bit more on the ticket and you had like a little tent that you could watch it from like kind of off to the side but still pretty close had like you know much easier access to the bathrooms had little snacks and drinks available and stuff like that so other good thing about this was that it was less densely packed. You know, like in the general admission, you know, giant beach area, everyone's standing pretty close together. And, you know, in part to minimize COVID risk and in part just because I'm a boring old adult, I wanted that. <laughs> I, I wanted the more like, you know, spread out, you know, boring adult version. So I did get the VIP ticket and that was totally worth it. <laughs> I'm so happy I did that uh, because the VIP area was much more like, you know, my scene as, as the boring old person. Um, and I was not the oldest person in the VIP section by a mile. Uh, I, I kind of felt like, oh, these these are my people. Okay, good. Um, but it was really an incredible experience, you know, it, uh, on a number of fronts. You know, obviously, you know, all the uh, all the massive clouds of smoke were funny, and it was it was interesting noting how like the, you know the, the fish crowd being very much. You know, this is very much a weed band. This is like this is different bands have different crowd energies and attitudes and you know problems or, or or benefits certain bands they're known for having like really rowdy crowds that you know might have a lot of violence problems you need like more security to you know to keep everything safe fish is not one of those bands <laughs> everyone is so high and so chill i noticed like <laughs> like when when people would like walk by you and like bump into you they'd they'd be like oh i'm so sorry like they're hey man i'm so sorry like they were so chill like nobody was like getting all aggro or upset anybody else like it was just really nice and so it it was great you know the the music was was it was a pretty good show like i had a, a couple of really of my favorite songs in there um but ultimately what i what was really the the big the biggest value to me in this show and if you'll permit me, uh, you know, you, you guys each have feelings podcasts. I don't. So I'm going to, you know, <laughs> this is going to have to go here. <laughs> That's top four. That's not a feelings podcast. Your feelings about Pop-Tarts. <laughs> anyway. So, you know, when all kidding aside, I, I know we make fun of my liking of fish on the show because it's funny and I, and I get that. But it is, you know, certainly not good for someone's psyche overall if nowhere in your life do does anybody think that the thing you like is normal you know like and i'm I'm sure you know many of many of us out there being computer nerds especially growing up you know in earlier decades as computer nerds i'm sure you understand like 
when the thing that you're into or that you identify with or that resonates with you, when everyone else thinks that's weird, when you're like the only person in the room who ever likes the band you like, that that weighs on someone. You know, it's it's a significant thing. When your own wife can't tolerate the music. Yeah, right. She can't. <laughs> she tries. Bless her. She she tries, but she can't, and it's fine. So it was especially like soul mending to be in this place where my music that normally I have to confine to headphones because it's too embarrassing and everyone else thinks it's too weird. My music was being blasted in the greatest possible way in this giant public area in this pretty big city full of tons of people, many of which were at the concert. So that's a, my music is being blasted aloud. B I am looking at thousands of people in front of me, real people who by nature of being there, most of whom don't think my music is weird. And that, that really meant something. I I really felt that. Uh, And so that, that was very helpful. And then finally, I had this moment where, you know, again, I, I think many of our audience can probably relate to maybe not being super comfortable with dancing. I, I'm guessing there's a lot of overlap between <laughs> programmers. That's a Texas size 10 four. Yeah. I'm between, you know, programmers and computer nerds and, and people who don't feel comfortable dancing very much. Um, so that's, that's certainly me. Uh, and I, one of the reasons why I'm, I hesitate to go to concerts is that I don't really know what to do when I'm at a concert. Cause I can't dance. I don't want to dance. I, I like, I just can't, I, I don't want to have, have that awkwardness, you know, of like trying to of like being pressured to like do something and being the weird guy just standing there or like, you know, weirdly moving my foot or something, you know? So that was, I was concerned a little bit about that going into this. So, you know, about about halfway through the concert, I looked around and I realized two things. Number one, I had been moving slightly in my incredibly <laughs> awkward, nerdy way to this music that is very hard to dance to. But I looked around the crowd and I saw every single other person was as bad at whatever the heck we were doing called dancing as I was. The enti- <laughs> there were thousands, thousands of people who were exactly as weird and awkward and bad at this as i was and it just is an incredible feeling to feel normal it like in this way that you always thought you were weird to have a place where you can feel normal and to feel fit in in a way that you never fit in that was worth everything so that i'm incredibly happy i went to this for many reasons but I got a surprising amount of like soul repair out of it. And I'm, and that, that was worth everything. And you didn't get COVID. And I didn't get COVID. Yay. Yeah. I got tested Again. before and after. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Did not get COVID. So that helped a lot. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was worth driving through New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> did you take any good pictures? Uh, yeah, I have a couple like video clips. It was mostly like, you know, just kind of like me, like, you know, panning across the crowd from my from my vantage point. Just like I, I just want to see like what the stage setup was now that you've kind of described it and throw a couple on the slack so I can see. Yeah, let me see. I will. But yeah, it's like w- the VIP tent was kind of like it was like it was near the front, but off to the side, which and it was good because I was actually standing up on the top of a platform. Like I, I was basically standing at the top of a staircase 
that that brings you like from the VIP platform, which was like a few feet up down. And so I was looking over the crowd by a few feet instead of being down, you know. So I had a fantastic view. I was going to use the analogy that like uh, what you're describing is kind of like going to Macworld Expo back before back when Apple was doomed, right? Because you'd finally find people <laughs> who like the weird computer you did. But someone in the chat yeah. had an even better example. Uh, they, even better example because it's even more narrow interest. They described it as being kind of like going to an ATP live show. Like you, listen to this weird, you listen to this weird podcast where they talk about technology and complain about Apple for two hours every week. And you're like the only person in your entire group of friends who even knows that this podcast exists, let alone listens to it. And then finally, you go to WWC and then suddenly you're a bunch of nerds who are into the same thing as you. And then you go to the ATP live show at WWDC and now you're with the tiny subset of a subset of a subset of a people who actually like this weird podcast. Uh, that that is extremely kind of uh, who PhD to say, and you know, Marco. As much as I genuinely love just beating you up mercilessly about fish, I, I am extremely, extremely pleased and and really happy that that you had this experience because I I, I don't have exactly one to one feelings when I go to see a live show, but I get the same net joy. Like my joy comes from different places is a better way of phrasing it. My joy comes from different places, but I have that unbelievable joy when I go to a concert of almost anything, even shows where I'm only mildly interested in the the artist that's performing. I get such immense joy out of seeing music performed live. I think partly because I am so incredibly inept at performing anything that even vaguely resembles music. Um, and so I just find it to be fascinating and, and incredibly impressive that any human being can make sounds that actually sound decent. But just to experience that and to have that 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 feeling of we're all in this together in the best possible way and we're all having fun together. And yeah, you know, like the only time you'll find me dancing is at a concert or if I've had way too much to drink, which hasn't happened in a long time. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you there in, in so many ways, this, your feeling and, and the joy that's exuding from you is so much the way I feel. And I'm so very genuinely glad that you had the opportunity to do that. So do you think you're going to try to make this again, like COVID issues notwithstanding are you going to try to make this something that you do more often i think i'm going to keep a much closer look on like where they are performing like what kind of venue are they performing at i i definitely you know with this i realize quite how awesome a beach venue is i've never seen a concert on a beach before this so like that's it really is quite something to see i would like to go maybe once a year or once every couple of years if they are playing at a really nice venue and especially if they do this one of those like VIP areas again, because that that greatly added to the the practicality and ease of me going to this concert. Like it's it's pretty good. Like when you're like you know a nearly forty year old boring guy to to buy the seat where like when you have to go to the bathroom you can just walk like thirty feet over and you get the air conditioned porta potty. <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's a very different experience than than what concerts usually are for most people. <laughs> So yeah, certainly if they offer this kind of thing again, this is actually one of the first times they've had one of those VIP areas. Um, but if they offer this kind of thing again, I, I would jump on it. And especially in, in a venue like this, where it's it's easy for me to get in and out of it. And, you know, like travel time isn't too bad. And it's a beautiful place, you know, with an, a nice outdoor, you know, scenario. I, I would I would definitely jump on that in the future. Last big concert I went to, I held my pee the whole time. It's a young person's <laughs> game. <laughs> <laughs> i watched i, oh, I was looking word. at some there was some forum post 
uh, back when, I, like when when the tickets first went for sale, I was trying to research like what what the different ticket types meant, and of course, so it's it's all these, these like fish fan forums and stuff that you get all these results from. Speaking of googling for answers, and. <laughs> And one guy was complaining, he was asking like, you know, hey, how do you, how do you guys go to the bathroom at the shows? Like, what do you do for that? And and this one response was, just smoke a blunt and eat a block of cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So so nothing has to come out. Oh my word. I don't think that works for pee. Well, as opposed to drinking though, like, you know, if you're drinking a lot, then. Mm -hmm. Goodness. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Well. Like I said, I'm very glad that you got the that you had the opportunity that you did it. That that it seems to have gone well. Um, you know, if if COVID ever gets to the point that we're okay with it, and if there's ever a time that there that fish is somewhere you know in between us, I would ser- I would genuinely entertain making a trip, and meeting up with you, and, and going just to experience it. Because I know when I see a Dave Matthews concert, which I haven't done in a couple of years, the the smoke smell is strong. But I've got to imagine it is not even an iota compared to what it's like at a fish concert. <laughs> I, I cannot fathom what that was like. Well, and especially because like the, you know, the, 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 the email that you get with like, you know, what's allowed in, what kind of bag you can bring in and stuff like that. There's a whole section of it uh, that's like, you know, don't, you, you know, no, no outside alcohol being able to brought in, uh, no illicit substances. And it's, it's like, okay, fish is a lot of drug culture among the audience, especially like there, it, Obviously, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on in there, and and I think that's kind of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing. But then I realized afterwards, like, wait a minute, weed's legal in New Jersey, so that's not an illicit substance in this venue. Actually, Marco, everything is legal in New Jersey. Well, yeah, it, well, except like you know, good road design. Um, but I realized afterwards, like, oh, that's why. Like, normally at a fish concert, nobody would really care, but here they especially didn't care, and I think that's why it was so incredibly like <laughs> everyone just massive cloud of smoke above the whole audience the whole time. Oh man! So for what it's worth, we I thought we were going to talk about this last week, and we didn't end up having the chance. But um, I I took a look at the set list from your concert. And the set list from the most recent Dave Matthews concert for which I could find the time that each song took. And I made a list in Solver of here's how long each of the Fish songs was. And then here's how long of each of the Dave Matthews songs were. And I computed the average length of a song at your Fish concert versus a mostly arbitrary but also recent Dave Matthews concert. Would you like to wager a guess either of those numbers or perhaps the difference between them. I I mean, to be fair, I don't know how much the length of songs matters because it's like, well, you know, it's a jam band. It's kind of like one continuous thing in, in, in certain <laughs> ways. Like there, there are breaks, but sometimes songs bleed into each other or they kind of like call back to earlier sure. songs. So I think what matters most is like, how long is the concert in total? In this case, it's three hours and there was a break in the middle. So that's, I, I, I think that's, it's less about song boundaries. However, to actually play along with your game, I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to guess that the average between the two bands actually is not that different. Uh, even though there were some pretty long ones in this in this show, um, but I, I'm I'm going to guess the average for this show for Fish was probably something along the lines of like seven or eight minutes, and I'm guessing the average for Dave Matthews is probably about five minutes. The longest, uh, and again, the I'm. Picking these two concerts mostly arbitrarily, I'm looking at uh, the 7th of August uh, for Dave Matthews. 
The longest performance or the longest song was 17 minutes, 55 seconds total time for the entire Dave Matthews show, two hours, 49 minutes, 46 seconds to come back to my actual question in your guesses. You said what? Seven or eight for fish was your guess. Is yeah. Right? For average song length. Yeah. 8.97 minutes. So I will give you full credit for that. Even though you were a minute off, I still count it. However, your guess of five minutes for Dave Matthews is, is pretty wrong. Eight minutes for Dave Matthews. So a difference of only about a minute. It was 8.97 versus 8.09. So only a minute difference between the two. I would have figured, especially given all the fun I've made of fish over the years, I would have figured it would have been like 15, 20 minutes for fish and like 10-ish for, less than 10 for Dave. And turns out, no, it was... Uh, it was about the same. And uh, CMF in the chat is asking, what was the long song with Dave Matthews? It was Seek Up, which is one of my favorites. So I think what we're learning here is that you don't have any right to make long song jokes anymore. <laughs> Possibly. I, I mean, I'm looking at this Dave Matthews set list. is 18 minutes, 10 minutes. 15, I'm <laughs> skipping a lot. But you know, of the long ones, there was 18 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, uh, 12 minutes. And those were the all the double-digit songs. Looking at the fish set... 14 minutes, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 11 minutes, 15 minutes. So there were more that were double-digit minutes, but still, it wasn't night and day like I would have expected. Yeah. Fish should have, uh, they might be giants open for them and just do like their super short songs to pull down the average. Speaking <laughs> of, was, there, was there an opening band? There's never an opening band for Fish anymore. Not There hasn't been for a really? very long time. In, in part, So one of the reasons why like it's good to be a fan of this band is like, they just want to give you as much music as possible. And so they start their shows pretty much on time. Like, you know, a lot of growing up in the 90s, you see a lot of these like, you know, 90s, like everything sucks, you know, caring about things sucks, you suck, like a lot of that culture in the 90s. And so, you know, there was this, this you know, arrogant rock star culture of like, you'd have the opening band, they would start late and then you'd be this long wait and like the, and then the, you know, like the quote, you know, real or whatever, like, you know, like the headlining band, would start even later and you're just waiting and they're just making you wait and you're just like you, you feel like they're being jerks to you by making you wait all this time and they're trying to be cool and it's like no you're just being a jerk this is not how his origins in the 90s by the way just FYI. well yeah i know that's, <laughs> i'm just saying like we saw it a lot in the 90s you know because that's when we that's when casey and i grew up <laughs> and, right and so you know fish has none of that attitude there's none of that like you know we're cool like you know f you like there's none of that attitude it's it's a very much like a positive just you know they're happy to be there and play and that's that's what they want to do. And so they don't have opening bands because they want to cram in as much music as possible. And and they're limited by like how late the venue and city will let them perform. They just want to cram stuff in. So they show up on time and they give you three hours of music. Like there's there's like a 15 minute set break in the middle. Everyone takes a break, goes to the bathroom, whatever, you know. But otherwise, like it's a ton of music. And this is and and I just I love that they just show up on time every time. Like it's it's good being a fish fan, even though you get no support from any room you're in, <laughs> but somehow they're selling out stadiums and beaches for three days in a row in the same city all the time. <laughs> all those thousands of people have to go something like, where do they go? Where are all these people in the rest of life? Like when I'm, you know, in, in, in all these rooms, I apparently find myself in, where are all these people? I, I, there's not one of them in the room. Like really, there's thousands of them right here. There's not one in all these other rooms I'm in. 